the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It might be helpful if you consider having the bulletin in front of you and having those passages there because I'm going through all of them this morning. Well, sort of dancing. And again, there is a fascinating emotional, ideological, and practical sequence in our passages this morning. There's also an amazing treasure. However, the pathway to that treasure takes many twists and turns and often feels somewhat elusive. At one level, it feels like a carrot dangling in front of us, just out of reach. We want to get it right, and we never quite seem to succeed. However, our concept and theology and faith in grace tells us that in the realm of the unseen world, the kingdom, or heaven perhaps, it's already finished. It's already completed. Reflected in Jesus' words on the cross, it is finished. We are absolutely loved by God, and faith invites us to live in that eternal truth. Yet our experience often messes with us and invites us to live with uncertainty. So what it means to live a Christ-like life can also be or seem elusive, even mysterious. And so we can be tempted to substitute certainty, legalism, materialism, avoidance, denial, even denominationalism, to give us a false sense of our rightness or control. And I want to suggest, as I have before, that these passages invite us to choose good uncertainties rather than bad certainties. Our desire to find predictability and control always tempts us towards bad certainties. It's about following the rules, and yet it is God's grace that permeates even our uncertainty. God's grace models this for us. For God, love always trumps rightness or power. And as Richard Rohr has suggested, every time God forgives, God is breaking God's own rules and saying that relationship with you matters more than God or you being right. And God is always faithful and just to forgive us our trespasses. Brian McLaren in his confronting book, Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned, says this about rightness and certainty. Our religion, he says, can hellify us by inspiring in us an impenetrable series of rightness or even superiority. That sense of rightness can inoculate us against humility, infusing in us an excessive confidence or addiction to the certainty that keeps us from seeing our own mistakes until after the harm has been done. Uh, hasn't that been true in our awareness recently? Harm has been done to others, including our children and to ourselves. Our religion is right we believe, which makes us right. And as a result, the more devoted we are, the more stubborn and unteachable we can become. And everyone can see it but us, because we're blinded by good things, our sincerity and our zeal. 
There's a Celtic saying, you learn nothing from life if you think you're right all the time. Isn't that just about right? So look with me at the sequence of these three passages. Hosea, in our first passage, is the son of Bere. He was an 8th century beast before Christ prophet in Israel and the nominal primary author of the book of Hosea. And Hosea is often seen as the prophet of doom. But underneath this message of destruction is always the promise of restoration. Even the Talmud claims that he was the greatest prophet of his generation. And whether he was an actual person or a metaphorical person, it is the symbolic and metaphorical message that is paramount. Now in Hosea's time, the people had chosen the more visible, tangible, and predictable religion of Baalism. It was culturally and more politically correct to follow Baal. And God and Hosea, God's prophet, are displeased. Yet, even in God's wrath, God is always present, or grace is always present. And our Hosea, our Hosea passage says this loud and clear. Not only does Israel receive this great grace, but Hosea, their prophet, is told to break the rules to demonstrate this grace. And if the book of Hosea was made into a movie today, it would be rated PG or restricted because the point is made not only dramatically, but with a lot of shock value and sensationalism. Hosea, the word means salvation, is told by God to marry a prostitute, possibly a temple prostitute uh, in the Baal religion. Her name is Gomer, which means come to an end. And he is commanded to have three children with her. A son, Jezreel, which means God scatters. A daughter, Ruma, which means pitied or not loved. And a son named Loami, which means not my people. And so the relationship between Hosea and Gomer parallels the relationship between God and Israel. Even though Gomer runs away from Hosea and doesn't honor the marriage vows, Hosea loves her and forgives her. And likewise, even though the people of Israel worship false gods, God continues to love them and did not abandon his covenant to them. Hosea is called to embody this good uncertainty, to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't honor the love and commitment that he reflects. The message is that God loves us, despite our actions, which might not always be reciprocal, and is even willing to suffer the pain in honoring of that love. In God's wrath, frustration, disappointment, and anger, God breaks God's own rules and says a relationship with Israel is more important than my divine rightness. Now that's astonishing. Has any culture or religion ever promoted a god like that? Don't humanity's god tend to be powerful and demanding personalities that must be appeased? Many gods reflect the values of the people who created them. And this reflects how humanity has tended, all of us have tended to create gods in the image of what we value, power and control. Christendom has often forgotten this and made God an angry God. 
a God that must be appeased. And like Israel, we want a God like all the other nations, just more powerful and more vengeful. If you keep a journal, here is something you might want to try. Divide your journal down the page in the middle and write your thoughts, your feelings, your prayers, your desires, your disappointments, etc., on one side. And then imagine God as loving action in the world and write down what you imagine that God to say back to you as loving action in the world. That's what it feels to me like Hosea is doing. He has all the emotions on one side of the page and feelings of being betrayed by his spouse, and yet he speaks words of faithfulness on the other side and a desire for restoration. This isn't a denial of the hurt or the pain or even the anger, but an awareness of the deep longing underneath that for that love to be reciprocal. And might that be what the scripture is getting at when it says, be angry but don't sin. It doesn't say don't be angry. Hosea submits and lives that reality prophetically. This isn't demanding that this is how we should love. It's demonstrating how God loves. And then our psalm. Our psalm declares the hope that lies in this unconditional love. I found myself hoping that Homer and Israel would realize where their choices were taking them and speak words like this. I've changed the verse into the first person to invite it as a response to our own awareness of error. Then I cried to the Lord in my trouble, and he delivered me from my distress. He led me by a straight way until I reached an inhabited town, home perhaps. I thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to me and all humanity, for he satisfies the thirsty and the hungry he fills with good things. And so in Hosea, we see a picture of the unconditional love that overwhelms the divine displeasure without denying it. And then our epistle. <clears throat> in our epistle, we find an ideological and theological teaching about that love, followed in our gospel by a practical story of how this might work out in actual situations. In our epistle, we're invited to, total, to a totally new way of thinking, to consider accepting that grace and extending that grace to everything, including ourselves. And while Paul might overemphasize the moralistic side of living, a temptation for all of us preachers and teachers, the consequence is obvious and overwhelming inclusiveness. The verse ends, clothing yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. And in that renewal, there's no longer a Greek or a Jew or a circumcised or an uncircumcised, a barbarian, a Scythian, an enslaved or a free. But Christ is all in all. There is no us and them. In this unconditional love, all distinctions between people melt away. There are just people created in the divine image, all of them, no more us in them. And to me, it sounds like Paul is saying, 
Keep working on it. Be gentle with yourself when you screw up. Be gentle with others when they screw up. And living this way is a daily practice based on self-awareness rather than just appearance. Yes, Paul ends up promoting the will, but willpower doesn't save anyone. It might help you through a rough time or keep you from making a bad choice, but it doesn't save you. That you're saved is God's promise in doing, solely. And then our gospel story. Our gospel story continues to put us into a place of good uncertainty, so typical of Jesus. Do you know that Jesus is asked about 183 questions in the Gospels? He only answers three directly. The rest he either ignores or he remains silent or he changed the subject or he told a story, told them they were asking the wrong question, asked them a question in return, shone a light on their insincerity or hypocrisy, or made the exact opposite point. Sometimes he redirected the question. Yet Jesus himself asks 307 questions in the Gospels. Might he be suggesting that we live the questions, the good uncertainties, and not be so sure of ourselves, maybe even humble? And it certainly confronts that aspect of the institutional church that has and continues to see itself as the official answering machine in its program for sin management. Talk about uncertainty. Most of what Jesus' statements, most of Jesus' statements can be misinterpreted in all areas except one, his insistence on the goodness and unconditional love of God. Jesus' teachings would never pass the test of historical church orthodoxy. And Jesus is saying that answers might be a plus in the technical and practical parts of our lives, but they're a liability in the mysterious world of spirit. And this is what I think Jesus is saying to this man who has definitely been mistreated. And he's also saying it to the brother who keeps everything for himself and to us who battle with these economic and cultural values every day. The paradoxical mystery of God leaves all of us as lifelong seekers, always novices, always beginners, always seeking a beginner's mind. And this is further emphasized in the story of the man he tells, which I'm guessing totally confused the man who asked Jesus to get his brother to share. I'm guessing he left thinking, well, <laughs> that wasn't helpful. And he tells a story about a rich fool and the man and we are left wondering, what's that got to do with anything practical and legal? Jesus calls this wealthy man a fool, but not because he's wealthy. Money's a great gift. It's a tool, it funds, it builds, it clothes, it feeds. Money builds hospitals, houses the, the homeless, teaches the illiterate, supports the arts, feeds the hungry. And Jesus relied on the money of others to support himself and his disciples. Jesus praised the woman who poured expensive perfume on him, preparing him, he said, for his burial. He was buried by a rich man who placed him in his own tomb. 
the foolish foolish the fool's foolishness is not that he was rich and later on in Luke 16 Jesus says that we should use our wealth to make friends to build relationships to be loving action in the world but let's be realistic wealth can also divide it can wall off and distract and lure and occupy and possess and so Jesus give the, gives the rich fool's obituary this introduction. He says, beware, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Both the rich and the poor can be greedy in their hearts. Greed here is more beware of the addiction to more having. The addiction for the poor may be jealousy. The addiction for the rich may be poor or much having. The having of a lot and the wanting of more because in seeking more and more in the greedy quest for much having, having, there never will be enough. And we know the unjust lengths to which people will go, to which we sometimes go in our much having. So once again, Jesus gives no definitive answer. Live the questions. If you've been given much, live in that uncertain place of daily deciding how to steward what you've been given. And if you have less, don't get caught up in jealousy and greed. For both the wealthy and the poor, I, me, my, and mine are aggressive pronouns. And to both of them, Jesus is saying, there are no buckets in a shroud. And only when we die will we be totally free. And in the meantime, we're called to humbly live the question daily dying to those temptations of greed now. Amen.